Hello everyone, uh, my name is Göran Lindahl, I'm professor at Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden, in Gothenburg, on the Swedish West Coast, and I'm at the uh, Department for Architecture and Civil Engineering, and I'm running a center which is called Center for Healthcare Architecture, where we deal with design issues both on strategic as well as functional level related to healthcare and healthcare challenges. Hello everyone, my name is Kat Chatfield, I'm the director of a small charity called Health Services Research UK. Uh, where we look at various issues affecting health and social care in the UK and beyond, including the uh, health and social care workforce. In my past life, uh, I used to run the BMJ's campaign for well-being, so looking at interventions that help support well-being uh, for doctors and other clinical staff. Good morning, Andre. Hi there. I'm Paul Barish. I'm an anesthetist and a researcher, and I've been involved for about 30 years in a variety of applied research topics around uh, achieving the quadruple aim of safety, quality, value, and most importantly, making sure the staff are happy and well cared for. Um, I'm a professor in the US at Thomas Jefferson University, um, but I also teach in several European universities, including at the University of Birmingham and uh, Polytechnic in Milano, um, and uh, delighted to be with you today. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Really good to be talking about well-being as a kind of core focus for this podcast. And Yoran, I wanted to start with a slightly challenging question. So you say in your notes that you sent over to me, happy staff deliver happy outcomes, which is a lovely little headline. I don't know what healthcare and social care is like currently in Sweden, but here in the UK, we've got very long <laughs> waiting times. We've got a, a workforce crisis. We've got strikes, high levels of burnout, moral injury, post-pandemic. Do damaged staff deliver damaged outcomes? Uh, I would say that they they probably do. The thing that happens, actually, uh, I mean, the statement, it's not about pouring syrup over everything because it's not that easy. But of course, if you feel uh, not well and that you're not appreciated and that your salaries are lagging behind and all the things, you are of course, taking the responsibility you're expected to take, but I would guess, or I would say that the productivity or the way you do it becomes less efficient and you don't bring any satisfaction with you back home, which means that you go back the next day starting at zero. So I would say that, although happy, of course, is a metaphor for lots of different things from personal drivers to, to salaries and other aspects, um, Yes, we, we need to consider a situation which I think in, in many other sectors we talk about work-life balance. And I think that's also what comes into play here. And of course, uh, even, even without the, the pandemic, which actually made the healthcare staff worn out, so to say, um, we would still have a challenge because of um, sort of demographic issues and aging workforce and all those things. Um, so... Um, I think that it's important to sort of go into that statement, <laughs> happy um, stuff. I think that we really have to work with that in mind. Um, and of course, it, it it's a, a vision metaphoric statement. Uh, but I think you have to consider that because you have to feel good when you come to work and you have to feel good when you leave it. Because otherwise, um, you will have to compromise with something. And a lot of healthcare staff compromise with their own health and with their own work hours and with their own family hours. This current climate we're in, Kat, we've seen this sustained pressure, haven't we, over many, many years. 
And we are in this sort of vicious cycle now of staff leaving and not getting replaced. And obviously that puts more pressure on everybody else in the system. What's your kind of reflection on the current health and social care workforce here in the UK? I mean, I have to sort of put my hand up here and say I am one of those leavers <laughs> who were, you know, trained as a GP and worked in the system and left in 2016. Um, so certainly speaking from personal experience, and this is all pre-pandemic, I think that we historically the NHS has run on a lot of goodwill from staff, a lot of discretionary additional effort, um, a kind of culture of a willingness to go above and beyond in terms of you know hours time commitment etc etc um and I think there used to be quite a lot of rewards in kind so you know when I was a junior doctor you had free toast um there was a sense of appreciation um you know a sense of status in society um and you didn't necessarily do it for the pure pay and financial reward although of course you know doctors are actually very well paid except you know members of society less so for other um clinical staff and support staff within health and particularly social care which is you know abysmal um so there, there were lots of kind of additional rewards um but then gradually they were eroded um all of those things were taken away the physical space was taken away from staff you know a lot of break rooms were converted into clinical areas um, and, and gradually the environment became, I think, more and more sort of unpleasant to work in. And then I think um, I think there was little attention paid to that reality for a lot of staff. Um, and I think it's once it became obvious that you didn't have to do this, you know, you didn't have to, as Yoren said, you know, pay with your own health or your family's time or, you know, your, your work-life balance, that you had the option to pursue a different career. I think the retention issue becomes very, very difficult. And then once you get into this vicious cycle, as you said, Andre, you know, you have understaffing, so there's more pressure on the staff who are existing. Um, and once you kind of lose that joy in work, which is obviously, you know, a big IHI campaign to sort of promote this uh, valuing of staff, um, it becomes it becomes really challenging. So I think there's a lot of factors at, at play. Um, I think it's not just the physical energy that the staff have expanded through the pandemic, but it's also the emotional energy, which I don't think we spend that much time and attention addressing. Um, so I'd really like to, to see that um, more talked about. And I think we will see that at the forum. Paul, do you want to give us a bit of the US perspective? And I know you work in other countries around the world. How much of what Kat and Yola have said there rings true for you? Everything that they've said rings true um, because the U.S. is so much larger and noisier. Uh, it's worse in many ways. Um, you know, the, the primary sin, if you will, Andre, is is we have to go upstream. If we think about the modern era of industrial improvement, starting with Frederick Taylor, this idea that the worker is not important, the system is important, which seems like a really good idea. Um, that and that ultimately has led to this concept that if we measure everything like with a stopwatch, we can improve clinician-patient time management. Um, we can ultimately improve the outcome. We can save money. And there'll be what used to be called happiness minutes at the end of the day. What in fact has happened is the exact opposite. The systems, because of poor design, for example, electronic medical records, actually impose more workloads, so-called affordances, which means more tasks that don't necessarily contribute to the patient, with sometimes nurses spending 50% of their shift time in front of a computer screen and not looking or talking with patients. 
And so while there is value in these principles of lean and Six Sigma, and I believe in them wholeheartedly, the question really is, can you standardize everything to the point that you reduce uh, human interaction? You ignore uh, the idea of the diversity that's natural, the physiological, the psychological, the cultural diversity. Um, and, and ultimately, what you do is actually you, you, you kill the joy of medicine. So, so many providers, particularly physicians, leave because they feel non-joyful. Even though they've made good incomes from medicine, it doesn't feel like what they signed up for. They don't have time to truly talk to patients about their full social determinants of health. Um, they don't really have time to engage further because they're on the clock. And they feel like they're on the clock. And the people around them can see that they feel like they're on the clock. Another term that's been coined in the US, Andre, is pajama time. Pajama time is time that clinicians put in on the electronic record after they go home, have dinner, put their kids to bed. And we know that they go back in the system to now add, correct, and, and uh, complete their documentation because there's not enough time for them to adhere to the forcing functions in the medical records. So they spend the few minutes that they have talking to the patients, they, they write in shorthand in their notes somewheres and when they go home they clean it up because for the legal formal record they want to have a proper note right and so what's amazing about this idea is that this is supposed to offer you know the the, the, the lillian gilbreth great thing time and motion it was supposed to offer efficiency and, and less and less work time and more time off and actually what it's seeing is more time and and more inefficiencies and more opportunities for failure. And so instead of having happiness minutes, we have we have angry minutes. We have psychological danger. So if you if you think about from Taylor to Deming and then on to Carl Weick, does it make sense to people? And finally, Amy Edmondson, who talks about psychological safety or the converse, psychological danger. Can staff speak up and say, I disagree with this inefficiency. I disagree with the way we're managing patients without being put on garden leave without dobbing out their colleagues and without feeling that somehow they're violating their oath. And so in, in so many ways in the US, because of um, mass introduction of electronic medical records, because of a hyper awareness to digital tools, all very powerful and important concepts, they've also been used in a perverse way to try to monitor every minute of the day. And by doing that, they've really extracted um, the, the informal nature and the congregation of people, the joy of coming together. And of course, the social isolation in the pandemic really, truly drove a stake through that. So now, not only are, am I not seeing people in the corridor, I'm barely even seeing them, you know, except on Zoom, which takes away all the socialization that we know is needed. And so that's the state of the affairs. And, and finally, I'll say that, not surprisingly, in the last two and a half years, we've seen a gradual increase in adverse events. So pressure sores, needle sticks, wrong side cases, patient falls, uh, up to and as much as 25%, both in the EU, in the UK, in the US. And not at all surprisingly, given that we've lost that intimacy of the teams working together at the patient's bedside, challenging each other, working together around a common uh, uh, issue while looking at each other and understanding as they work as a team, as, a as opposed to a band of individuals uh, tasked with a, a certain uh, checklist of tasks that they have to do. You know, we've got such a focus on safety, but you know, you said that pyjama time, writing up your notes, they're not to serve patients or to improve the care. You know, it's kind of legal back covering, you know, and, and the checklist of tasks. Yes, of course, they are designed to increase safety, but but they also 
a lot of the time are just adding burden. And I think, you know, there's this discussion to be had around the inherent risks of healthcare, the inherent risk of illness, you know, and as a GP, used to shoulder a lot of burden of risk, you know, and that was part of the job to take on that risk and, and to bear it. Um, and then we have all these systems that she's designed to kind of remove risk and make things safer. I'm just not sure it's a realistic goal. There's a paradox. On the one hand, we've spent a lot of time and money and maturing safety systems. But on the other hand, what we're seeing is more, more risk and more adverse events in spite of all the good work. And there has been good work. And a variety of these systems have helped narrowly limit problems, for example, catheter-based infections and stuff like that. But if you look at the recent data published by Bates and in General Medicine just last month, it would seem that after 30 years, we're finding the same amount of preventable harm. As much as 25% of inpatients have some element of preventable harm. And and uh, this is similar data that's coming out of the NHS. And so this paradox of we've tried really hard, but clearly the way we've gone about it has not been the most effective way. And that begs a question, what needs to happen in the next 20 years to make sure that we don't replicate these same uneven and poor results? The biggest risk is that in, in 20 years time then is that we only have the textbooks because all, all, all the intrapersonal com competence and capabilities that are being de developed while you work together as a team or with colleagues, uh, there's no time for it. And there might not even be enough colleagues to have those informal talks. And also, as was pointed out before by Kath, that you know, the spaces to sit down and talk and uh, write on a whiteboard, they are gone. Um, so I think that that's actually a huge risk that we are sort of having a decreased uh, daily level of knowledge sharing in the healthcare system. Let's bring it right down to some specific examples of projects that you guys have worked on that have started to address some of these issues. For about 15 years, a group of us, um, both through the International uh, Academy for Design and Health, as well through the European uh, Public Health Association, as well as through other bodies, we've been looking at this question of how the physical built environment creates conditions for success or failure. So for example, if we want a room that uh, <clears throat> helps to support communication between team members, we have to remember about the amplification of noise within um, high room ceilings that have very reverberating surfaces, uh, particularly if you're talking about high stress situations like in a resuscitation, you're talking about people with lots of accents. And so we know that the so-called intelligibility, which is this measure of can I hear what you're saying to me, is highly conditioned by my by natural uh, sensory organs, but also by the environment around me. So you can imagine that around lights, around noise, around cognitive input, around the ability to understand what's going on. All these um, measures <clears throat> are all about how we uh, interpret the environment and how does that uh, interface with our taking care of a patient. So if you're in a busy A&E and there's a huge amount of noise, we know that increases the blood pressure of the patient and the provider. Um, we know that causes errors in communication between the provider and the patient. We know it leads to a lot more frustration waiting for the clinician to see you. So the environment around the interaction has a growing uh, importance on shaping the quality, on shaping the intimacy, on shaping the service perspective. 
And so these are these are uh, important aspects of working with architects, engineers, planners, procurement of systems to create the best conditions so that the nurses and physicians and pharmacists and others can come together and deliver better outcomes. So we and others have been able to show that there's demonstrable effect on the perceptions of how people feel about these interactions given different conditions, um, that there's actually an improvement, not just in service, but perhaps also in outcomes. So so-called patient reported outcomes that patients feel better about this type of care, staff feel safer in an environment, we know, for example, that environments that are more noisy and hectic um, <clears throat> feel dangerous for staff. Um, it feels psychological danger. And sadly, in the last several years, we've seen also physical violence against staff rise up. And we know that physical violence tends to be much more likely in an environment that's unprotected, that feels unsafe, that doesn't have um, orderly conduct of people waiting. If you combine people in lots of pain and suffering, and they're all waiting in a long queue, and there aren't enough staff, you can imagine that's a very combustible environment. Throw in a few people with alcoholism, throw in a few more people after car crashes, and before you know it, you have a near free-for-all. In fact, it's almost a riot. That's how it feels sometimes. And so in order to prevent that, how do we design the environment, the physical and organizational environment, to help attenuate those circumstances and to make it easier for the patient and family to feel respected, to make it easier for the clinician to go through the steps they need to do, and, and to, for the system to be able to measure this and to make sure that, you know, are we losing patients because of this? Are our patients unhappy because of this? Are our clinicians frustrated because of these things? So we need an iterative uh, audit cycle or feedback cycle that allows us to improve. And that's where the built environment um, comes together with the science of improvement and the science of implementation. How do we actually introduce these things at work in a real setting, which might be very different in London or Birmingham or Paris or, or New York? And then how do we make this better and better with the idea that we need to iterate in order to improve these services designed around patient needs, supporting uh, the, the providers that are taking care of those patients, and of course, the organizational envelope that allows them to function as a financial and organizational unit. How do we evaluate the political objectives? How do we evaluate the clinical objectives? Because we all know what concrete per cubic meter costs, but um, what is the output actually in clinical data? And the problem is that we don't, we don't set any objectives in the beginning of projects to follow up and measure on this. We can't calculate healthcare facilities or buildings on the production cost of the, the construction project. We have to look at it in a much bigger scale with the societal benefits. And that is, of course, a very tricky approach where we will find some relationships, but we will also have to, given the well-being approach, in some cases, we also have to accept that we as human beings like daylight. <laughs> it's because I mean some of these things that uh, I think it's interesting that when we didn't have electrical lights, uh, everybody you know it was natural that you took care of the daylight, and then we had electrical lights. Now we have to argue for more daylight. You know, <laughs> it's it's that kind of uh, environment. Win. So actually, I think that one of the challenges here is actually to bring the construction of healthcare facilities into um, the healthcare realm rather than leaving it in the construction budget or financial or financing because then you start counting door handles and things like that and and square meters of windows 
a, a very concrete example is that there's an old building in, in a hospital, well, it's from the 1950s here in Gothenburg in Sweden. The energy directives of the hospital does not allow for uh, displaced cooling apparatus. So it's the summertime when the rooms are really hot in some places in that building. They are really hot. And one of those rooms is the room where they prepare the medications for the patients. But they're not allowed due to an energy directive coming from the facilities to bring in a local cooling machine into that room. I mean, building for healthcare today is not about uh, making the best construction product. It's actually about delivering the best support for the healthcare. The work that, that I've been doing recently in this space is is really in my role of trying to um, bring together evidence and policy. Um, so what, what we've been doing and what we're going to be doing at a, a separate event in March before the forum is bring together researchers and, and policymakers and, and try to understand, you know, where the evidence exists for benefits in terms of strategies to support the workforce um, around data, planning, reward, retention, recruitment, training, new ways of working, all of these kind of issues that we've touched on as potential solutions and where the kind of research gaps are, where we need to kind of get more understanding and where the policy gaps are. Um, and I think particularly a lot of the work that's been done in research in this space has been very um, unidisciplinary. There's a lot of work that's been, been done in nursing that hasn't been transferred over into other allied health professionals, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's the kind of work that I'm engaged in in the kind of research and policy space. Let's think about one priority each for the next decade. We want to really address this issue of staff well-being employees come to work because they want to contribute they want to be listened to they want to be respected our data from norway and others from around the world show that when staff don't feel respected more patients die no in certain terms and so there's a real price to not respecting staff there's a real price to not understanding what they need um, that doesn't mean they don't do their job they do do their job but the environment around them is truthful, is transparent with the data, is is trusting in the way they're being communicated to. And of course, there's a negotiation that goes on naturally because there's a lot of moving parts in these systems. So it starts with psychological safety. Staff have to feel comfortable that they can speak up without being punished. They have to feel comfortable and in being invited into improving the process. We call this co-production, this idea that if you want to improve the process, of anything, if it's a car plant or a city landscape or getting your kids to school on time, you have to actually learn to negotiate with them. You have to incorporate their input. Otherwise they go through the motions when you're watching and when they're not, they don't do it. And so as a frustrated father at times, it's take me a while to realize that I have to give up some power, but on the other hand, now they do it because they want to do it, right? And and so it's uh, it's lovely to hear my, my son say when he goes to a friend's house, it's so messy, he never cleans his room. And it's so interesting to hear that, right? And so equivalently, if we think about how to engage staff more fully, that means asking the question, why are they there? Given that so many have left, maybe we should start asking people, why are you still here and why haven't you left? And let's focus on the reasons that keep them there. The joy of the work, the satisfaction of helping patients, the camaraderie of the colleagues, the ability to be part of something larger than just themselves. And how do we best protect those needs that they're very clear about? Multiple studies have shown it's very clear why people leave. We know this. 
we we need to use this existential wake up of COVID, where thousands of employees were harmed, as much as 115,000 died, according to the WHO. In, in England, probably about 1,500. In the U.S., about 3,000 nurses, physicians, and others, due to their job taking care of patients with COVID. This needs to be a wake-up call, not just about the occupational wellness, but about the emotional wellness of how do we keep these employees on side, listen to them better, and incorporate them more fully in any type of ongoing changes, improvement, and measures of metric of their performance. And I think that is the best way to do that. It's not easy to do, but there are systems both in the UK and Europe and around the world that are really leaning into these ideas and gaining more by having the staff help direct these improvements, including cutting costs. So there, I mean, this idea that staff cannot be accountable or responsible for making tough decisions is silly. We know that if you invite them into those decision-making, you make the data transparent, many of them, if not all, will step up and say, we can make this better. Autonomy for staff is, is a huge issue. And I think, you know, as we as I said before, as we kind of move to a system where we we kind of expect no risk and no harm, and we're sort of constantly judging people against, are you providing guideline-based care? There's both this sense that you're not doing anything meaningful because any monkey could kind of deliver the guidelines, the textbook, you know, if you're not having the time to deliver the re- relational side of care and all those interpersonal things that you're in with was uh, was referring to which is hugely meaningful part of, of the job for a lot of people and being eroded by time constraints technology you know consulting by email instead of face-to-face because you're trying to meet access targets and kind of increase capacity uh, so I think having autonomy is is that's a bit of real challenge for staff at the moment um, and I, I don't know how we kind of regain autonomy without increasing risk in the system but you know perhaps there are honest conversations to be had around trade-offs um you know between accepting risk and, and sort of enabling staff to, to sort of provide meaningful care um and it, like you said paul um expecting staff can't say resources is silly but i think also expecting patients to not being able to have these kind of um conversations about what your expectations of care are what your expectations of your care provider are how you can relate to each other as human beings, you know, what the social contract is between between patients and the healthcare system. I think we need to sort of get used to having these more um, sophisticated, nuanced conversations about what we can do within the envelope of resources we have, you know, across the board, staff, cost, sustainability, resources. I think we have a lot to learn from, um, you know, less resource rich systems you know I think you know we don't often look to sort of lower and middle income countries for what they're doing but you know they've been running healthcare systems with a lot fewer resources um, for a lot longer um, with staff really going above and beyond but but feeling very meaningful often a very meaningful kind of contribution to their work Um, and I think talking to colleagues in in other kind of health systems in lower and middle income countries is always really enlightening Um, and I'd like to see see more of that and I think that's something we could do a lot more of at the forum as well. But also coming from the built environment area I think that it's also important to look at the physical the facilities the physical environment for healthcare not as a backdrop to the healthcare system but rather as a part of it Uh, because uh, I don't say that you know we won't cure cancer by putting the right kind of window in the right place but we can sure support 
people's ability to take into advice. We can support well-being with staff. We can support recuperation. We can create attractiveness. So all these other things that also are necessary for, for the healthcare system to work. I mean, my, my typical example is that, well, the, the midwives go to Norway to work from Sweden because they get a better pay, but they also say that the facilities are nicer. So there is something there, and we have to understand these mechanisms. All right, we're nearly out of time, so I just want to make sure we cover the the kind of your opportunity to advertise your session at the conference. Kat, I know you're speaking with Ruth Glassborough. Your session has got the best title, I think, of the conference. You've called it Channel Your Inner Stoic, Seven Actionable Improvement Leadership Tips from Ancient Philosophy. I'm intrigued. Tell me more. Uh, I think it is exactly what it says in the tin, Andre. It uh, came out of a conversation that a group of us had um, in a, another setting when we independently found out that we'd all really turned to Stoic philosophy to help us kind of cope with the challenges of of the pandemic and, and sort of workforce pressures um, over the last few years um, and that we'd found I suppose going back to what I was saying about resilience this kind of helpful um, reflection that people have been struggling with with big challenges for many thousands of years and, and partly how you proceed through it depends on how you react to the situation you know you can't control a lot of the situation but hopefully you can influence how you feel about it and how you approach it um, and how you think about it using a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy type approach um, so really we're just going to reflect on those seven principles from stoicism uh, how they've each helped us in different ways on our own personal kind of leadership challenges um, and enable people to uh, spend some time reflecting on their own work and challenges and where they might find these things useful um, the area where they find they're most successful in kind of applying these these uh, principles and perhaps the area that they most want to develop so I hope it should be a really interactive session um yeah I'm looking forward to it wonderful thank you so that's at quarter past one on Wednesday the 17th of May so go to that have a lot of fun with Kat and Ruth uh grab yourself uh, a coffee and a sticky bun which I'm sure will be freely available in Copenhagen and then come to Bjorn and Paul's session, Designing Hospitals That Promote Staff Wellbeing and Retention. So it, it is pretty much about how do we create those physical environments in, in the healthcare system where people actually want to work, where you want to go in the morning or in the evening. It's going to be very interactive. And given Kat's lovely focus on stoicism, I would say that we are very focused on Epicureanism. That is to say, we don't think this is a duty. We think that this is a passion this is about happiness. This is about ease. This is about satisfying the needs. I think providers go into medicine because they have a deep need to serve. This is not about stepping aside and watching and passionately. This is about leaning in and being involved in understanding. And that is at the heart of great medicine. So for the sake of this wonderful duel and to make a little bit more hype here, I'd say you have the Stoics on one side and you have the Epicureans on the other side. And hopefully we can bring a little bit of the best of the philosophical worlds to bear at this conference in, uh, in Great Copenhagen. Mm -hmm.